Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 7th, 2022, the Hague Rumor Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by an extremely chatty Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, who practically did a podcast before we started taping. <laughs> and it's only oh God, like eight in so the morning. No, it's not embarrassing. You're just, you're just, I'm just raising expectations that people will, will expect you to really bring it today. Mm. What's funny is that it's as if I hadn't spoken to anyone for a week, but actually I got to go to New York and talk to people yesterday. So maybe that's what set it off. Now I can't shut up. Yeah, you're a chatty New Yorker now. You're animated by social interaction. And so you're more yes. animated because you've had social interaction rather that's than right. been deprived of it. And that other voice, of course, was John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I am not energized by the company of others. Also, that is a true fact. This week on the GabFest, the war crimes of the Russian army are exposed. Uh, what does that mean for the outcome of the war in Ukraine? Then the new bizarre Republican obsession with grooming and how that connects to Florida's don't say gay law and the interesting assault on Disney that is now taking place. And then what does the Amazon union foretell for organized labor in the United States? Plus we'll have cocktail chatter. The Russian army's war crimes in Bucha, which were revealed when the army withdrew from around Kiev last week, have rekindled the world's fury about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Americans and Europeans are going to increase sanctions on Russia, probably targeting Russian coal, more Russian banks, Putin's children. But the war, of course, drags on. And Russia seems committed to taking the Donbass region, to conquering Maripol, to making life hell for Ukrainians across the country. So I want to start with a question which I think is, you know, could get at how long this is going to last and, and is this war going to turn out as badly as everyone fears it could. What people I think hoped would happen, which is that the Russian economy might collapse, there might be a popular rebellion in Russia, there might be a revolt of the oligarchs, has not so far happened in the month, the five, six weeks of this war. The Russian economy is persistent. It is limping along, but it has not collapsed at all because Russia still has plenty of things that it exports that the rest of the world wants or needs. So why is it that, that Putin is, is holding up that piece of it well enough to, to save himself, John? Well, he's taken a number. Uh, there are two things. One, he he and the bank of the Russians uh, banking system have done everything that they can to prop up the economy. I mean, they've taken extraordinary measures, which is why which which will be hard to sustain. And also Russians have a high pain threshold at the moment, which is that they're enduring the return to, you know, Putin wanted to return the Soviet Union or Russia to its Soviet greatness. He is with lines and, and scarcity, but the Russian people are are hanging with him. I mean, the other thing also, though, is that um, uh, Russia still continues to take in, uh, I think it's, this can't be right, but $200 million a day in uh, from right. the sale of gas and oil and coal from Europe. I mean, which is why the the foreign minister of Lithuania said buying it's, Russian oil and gas is financing war crimes. I mean, I think the, you mean that the, 200 million euros just from Germany alone every day. Okay, you're right. I think, that's right. I believe it's just from Germany. You're right. It was such yeah. a large number in my head that I couldn't, but you're right. That's exactly right. It's just from Germany. And, and, and um, which is part of why you have this debate um, 
with other European nations saying that uh, that they should cut off gas. Germany, which is so dependent on Russian gas, it'll take two years to wean itself off of it, uh, can't do that. It would cripple its economy too much. But um, anyway, so two things, propping up the Russian economy internally, which, which he may not be able to keep doing for very long. Uh, and then the second thing is, is still taking in money from the sale of energy. I think there's a third thing, actually, if I could add, which is just there is no ro- Russian popular opinion or there's very little Russian popular opinion because there's so much f- for those who oppose what's happening. There is tremendous amount of fear. You would not want to risk your own skin by speaking out against this. And many people support it because there's been a fairly effective uh, control of information flow within Russia so that people have a perception of what's happening in the war that's contrary to at least to, to the facts as we know them. Right. It was reported that you'd be prosecuted for 15 years or something if you claim that what happened in Bucha was uh, was Russia, was a Russian atrocity. If you say that inside Russia. Let's turn to what happened in Bucha, Emily. This is a, a kind of war crime, hundreds dead, hundreds of civilians apparently just murdered in cold blood in various ways by the Russian army. Why bother? Why would this happen? What is the point of even doing this if you're the Russian army? I mean, it seems like there are a few answers. So the strikes on apartment buildings or theaters or hospitals, I mean, those seem like they're designed to, you know, terrorize the civilian population and someone ordered them from some military position. The horrifying, I mean, it's all obviously horrible, but the deaths on the street of people, you know, some with their hands tied, someone on a bike still clutching a bag of potatoes and someone falling off his bike, those you wonder if they're some kind of just like killing of frustration or revenge by Russian soldiers who are seeing their fellow soldiers die in this terrible operation that's going awry, and they don't have a really strong chain of command, apparently. And they're committing war crimes of the sort of individual sort that, you know, we have examples of in the United States. And they're horrifying because I think they just show the way in which people's minds spin out of control in war sometimes, that the violence and aggression of war and the suffering of war and um, seeing people you care about get hurt just cause people to commit tremendous acts of cruelty. And it's deeply, deeply... It's agonizing to watch. And there's this part of me that thinks like, okay, so we really need to prevent World War III. That's still very important. And yes, it just feels so unworthy that the world is not figuring out some way to muster a stronger response, even though I don't want to be a warmonger. As I say that, but sorry, to add one more question to end with, do you guys feel like you understand why we are blocking Poland from sending MiGs through NATO or other offensive weapons. I mean, why is that the line that we think is going to make Putin, you know, begin World War III? There have been two reasons when I've asked why this is why they didn't let Russian MiGs through. One is that because of the way that the that Poland wanted to do it, it put U.S. fingerprints more actively on the the weapons of attack against Russia, and that if they were, and those MiGs ended up being used in offensive, in other words, incursions into Russia, that it draws the U.S. in more obviously. But you're right. Why is that different than all the stingers and javelins which are going in, flooding into Ukraine through Poland? And the second thing, though, is that at least, and this may be uh, spin, but um, 
that in fact the javelins and the and the stingers are more effective than than the MiGs would be in terms of defending Ukraine against what against the Russians. It is pretty amazing. I, I of course the United States in its wars in Afghanistan and Iraq there were episodes both involving U.S. soldiers and involving contractors where people, uh, Iraqi and Afghani civilians, were murdered in cold blood or where prisoners of war were murdered by U.S. soldiers. But there was nothing, in 20 years of war, there was nothing remotely comparable to what's happened in, in Bucha. You know, there's been writing about this. But it's a tribute to the fairly strict well-behaved NCO and junior officer class that the United States military has to to accountability to a system of military justice where if you are if you disobey orders or you act in these inhumane ways you can be held to account and it just re- is a reminder of how despicable and undermining it was that president Trump then president Trump essentially cleared soldiers who had been accused and can, in some cases convicted of crimes of this kind of crimes of inhumanity against against prisoners of war and maintaining this level of civ- civility of civilization and of integrity is really important if you are uh, trying to create a military that is trusted and respected both internally in the United States but also uh, when it goes abroad and when when it has to deal with civilian populations and Trump undermined that so but but in general, the United States has been really good. And that's that's I think that speaks very well for us and for our military. I mean, it's so important to remember just how much power military troops have in that situation. Like there is other than the accountability that they provide for each other, there is no accountability. It's like being the world's least accountable f- police force when you're in a civilian population in a place where you're at war. And so if you don't have some strong deterrence right. guideposts and guardrails in place, like this is what happens. Right. And it's 18 year old boys. It's 18, 20 year old boys who are boys. hyped up on testosterone, who are scared, who are like, who knows what's going through their heads. And it, to be able to control that is extraordinary. Can we ju- also, I think this adds to Putin's failure when you think of his aims, I mean, the biggest failure, of course, is the is the what looks like at the end of this week, the stunning defeat in Kiev, um, you know, a city that the Russians and to be fair, U.S. intelligence agencies thought would fall in a couple of days. The Russians appear to have basically given up on Kiev. Now, that isn't necessarily good news, because as you pointed out at the beginning, David, it may mean all the more atrocities in Donbass or in the east where they've where they're now focusing their effort. But I mean, huge defeat and misunderstanding by Putin himself, not what he was told by his generals, but a huge misunderstanding of the Ukrainian people who he's unified for all time. So an enormous embarrassment in the military front and these atrocities which, you know, despite the the um, propaganda inside Russia, which says they're fake, which is all, of course, baloney, there's footage of all of this happening that will live on forever. And forever, Putin will be associated not just with the invasion and the war, but setting the new high watermark or low watermark, depending on which you, for human ugliness. So in just in terms of his goals, in terms of creating Russian greatness, this has been yet another part of his massive disaster. Do, do, going back to your question, Emily, you said this this war crime makes you think, oh, that we should be able to do something else. But then you sort of stop short of saying, of, of naming something else, because 
it is true. I don't know we what are to un- name. Yeah, what, what is it that we could name? And it feels like the things that we could name, which is cutting Russia off from any sources of, of European or American funding, namely cutting off all of their exports to Europe and, and the U.S., is unattainable because Germany feels it would suffer, that it would cause more suffering in Germany than it would cause in in Russia. It would be too damaging and probably erode support for the war in Germany itself. And so what what remains for us? Well, that's why I raised my question about whether there's a way to send some offensive weapons to the Ukrainians that um, would allow them to fight back more effectively in the East. You know, I this is not uh, helpful because it's not, fixable right now. But Germany's decision to close those nuclear power plants just looms so large, like the trust of Russia that that entailed, and also just the short-sightedness, given that it's closing a nuclear power plant is very different from building a new one in terms of thinking about environmental consequences. And somehow Merkel and the government lost sight of that, and it just is making such a difference right now. I mean, you have to think that it is absolutely part of Putin's calculus, and and the Nord Nord Stream one and two, in addition to the to the power plants. Yeah, it, wait, I sorry, yes, it, starting those gas pipelines. Uh, well, not just starting, finishing one, almost completing the other. I mean, it's absolutely, and you know that Nord Stream two is going to open event. It's hard to imagine it won't, and Putin knows that. You know, one of the ways you can answer this incredibly difficult question is. It's not really in terms of the under the U.S. control, but I mean, it's essentially what Zelensky will agree to if if the talks ever get anywhere. In other words, you know, does he basically give up the East um, if Russia has gone back is is doing two things. One, retreating from its goal of taking over the whole country and then pounding the East, you know, brutally and with this same these same kinds of atrocities over the next couple of weeks, the solution is to take a, you know, is to take an ugly deal, but to take an ugly deal to stop the killing. But then, of course, one wonders about the medium and the long term of that deal, because it makes Ukraine more vulnerable. And it might just be like a brief pause or, yeah. I mean, I'm not telling them what to do, obviously, but I find that scary. Well, I think one of the recognitions that's come to me, which I don't know why it's taken me so long. I think it's because it's frankly because of a kind of narrowness of mind when I've looked at the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, which is the wars that I've looked at most visibly in my life, which is that when you see the asymmetry that a hundred dollar shell can cause a million dollars in damage in, in a city like, like Kharkiv or, or Maripol, that the ability of an army, even a badly run poorly equipped army to cause an immense amount of suffering and damage if it is willing to destroy all this human effort, all this human ingenuity, all this human habitation and and commerce. If you're willing to do that, uh, you can just cause immense amounts of suffering and damage with very little effort and very little spending and without huge risk because you just fire some shells randomly and you knock down apartment buildings you knock down theaters you knock down things that people spent years building and you kill people doing it and this is not to say that russia could conquer and hold ukraine in the long run it couldn't it's clearly it could not do that it's now evident but can it with a relatively small amount of money and a small amount of effort 
make life so miserable and and destroy so much of this kind of happy uh, normal economic and and social and and spiritual and athletic life that everyone leaves such that that Ukraine would rather have peace uh, and give up something they can and that's a terrible thought I think Russia's going to win this war not by winning the war but just by having being so Wrecking freaking brutal having a that they're going to wreck pressure. stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, but it's not even, they're not, pe- they're not, they're not that, actually suffering, well, suffering I'm, the pain. Right. Well, like the soldiers dying is them suffering, but it's yeah. not equal. Absolutely. Nowhere near. You're right. They're not suffering, obviously, anywhere near. I mean, what, th- like, like, think about what, imagine this, the counterpart. Like, the United States, the United States Army, should it choose, could go and start raining shells on Montreal, like, tomorrow. We could start. Just, we could rain shells on Montreal and Toronto and Ottawa and Vancouver, and 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 cause literally billions of dollars in damage in a day. Should we choose and tell the Canadians you have to, you know, you now have to hand over every maple tree in the country to us, and the Canadians would be foolish not to. And that feels like sort of what the Russians have decided. It's like, yeah, fuck it. We're just gonna we're just gonna shell everything. We don't care, and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna bear it, and then they're gonna. Give in. What do you think this does, if anything, to the long-term conscience of of Russians? I mean, at the moment, the the propaganda machine is keeping Russians uh, on the narrative that Putin would like. But over time, these footage, this footage will only increase. It will leak through, and do people just ignore it because you have to? You can't believe you. It's 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 too unpleasant to believe that this was done. Uh, by your country or that some other narrative papers over it? Or do you the think- The former more than the yeah. latter, right? I mean, it's so hard to, like, this is your life. You support this ruler and his regime and his cult of personality and the people around you support it. It's really hard to think that this is all terrible and wrong, much easier and more emotionally satisfying to call the Ukrainians Nazis and blame them for the imagery and imagine that, you know, the United States staged this in Bucha because Bucha sounds like the American, the English word butcher, which is something Putin was saying. I mean, my friends who are Russian, whose families are in Russia, are still on Facebook posting very pro-Putin misinformation. And I, you know, there will be a reckoning over time among some people, but I think the idea that, like, the majority of Russians are going to come to feel like this was a terrible tragedy in their name. I I keep waiting for it. Yeah, I think yeah. it's the only thing that could stop it. But I don't. I oh, man. I mean, what, you know what? It ha- what is? We had to defeat not totally dissimilar in Vietnam, where we behaved badly and massacred people, and and we were deluded about it for a and, long time. I mean, what, not everybody. What, we had protests. We had we had images that came in. So I don't know. Maybe John, you feel like that's well, I don't know. Like the, an optimistic comparison and Vietnam's syndrome, which is to say the 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 shame, the stupidity, all of the negative qualities from the Vietnam War, which were reanimated again. You know, in Ken Burns's multi part documentary again. I mean, that is a that has hung over U.S. foreign policy, not so much that it that it stopped them from pe- repeating some of those lessons in Afghanistan and Iraq, but it hung over U.S. foreign policy and dictated it, in many people's view, for a really long time. So the ne- the blowback was was pretty powerful. It may not have been 100% all-controlling, but it was pretty darn powerful after Vietnam. Slate Plus members, 
you get bonus segments on the GabFest. Every week, we have a special extra conversation for you. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. Those are some of the most entertaining, interesting, weird segments that we do on the GabFest. Today, we're going to talk about the third shift. Is it good or bad that some workers now appear to be working a third shift late at night? We're going to discuss... We're not going to wait until the third shift to do it. <laughs> you can hear it now. Although maybe you can't listen until your third shift. I don't know. Anyway, Slate Plus membership also gets you member-exclusive episodes on other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus, also lots of other bonus segments on other shows, and no ads on any Slate podcast. So go to slate.com slash plus and become a member today. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Grooming is a phrase that really, I, I feel like, was barely heard a few years ago, but it is now been weaponized in Florida and across the country. Florida Republicans are attempting to make any criticism of the don't say gay bill the state just passed, barring teaching concepts about sexual orientation and gender identity to children and also barring certain kinds of, or, or making it, requiring schools to report certain uh, kinds of counseling that they're giving to students or counseling that students are requesting. Um, they are identifying opponents of this bill, as well as the entire Disney Corporation, apparently, as groomers. Emily, this has gotten so extremely ugly, so fast. Why is this so, it is so ugly. The behavior, overwhelmingly, on the part of, of the conservative supporters of this law is grotesque, and, and this attempt to sort of drag claims about pedophilia into something, it, it's it's vile, but why does it happen? One thing that's happening is that it's transgender kids and trans rights that are the wedge issue here. And that is the kind of less familiar part of the equation, right? So you can think of this as like the right wing has basically lost on gay and lesbian issues. This because this Florida Don't Say Gay bill includes sexual orientation as well as gender identity in its provision that teachers aren't allowed to talk about these two topics with younger kids and then they have to only speak in some vaguely undefined developmentally appropriate way with older kids. Because it includes sexual orientation, it obviously like is this full-on throwback to Anita Bryant, the anti-gay and lesbian activist from the 1970s. Like, it's full-on that. And I think that the accusations of pedophilia and grooming absolutely go back to that period. And you're right, it is vile. And really just, like, completely wrong to make teachers look over their shoulders about things like a book that has two moms in it or just saying that their partner is, you know, is a partner from a same-sex marriage or that a kid's parents. I mean, it just, that part of it is so... 
upsetting. The other thing I think about trans people and trans rights is like they have increasing visibility and some increasing social acceptance right now. And that is a really good development in a lot of ways and liberating for a lot of people. But it also is threatening because it's less familiar. And gender identity, the idea of changing gender is a big deal and something I think a lot of people like only just haven't thought about very much. You know, you've like heard of Caitlyn Jenner or Laverne Cox, the movie stars, but like to really think it through what it means for kids, people talking to kids about it. I don't think the American culture and society has really thought that through. And so that it's easy to make it sound really scary and bad. And that's what the right is doing right now in Florida. In part, they're doing that because they're trying to wrestle the turf back because unlike critical race theory, and we should talk about the parallels between the, the two because same people are involved and it has some of the, some similarities and some significant differences. But the pushback against this bill, the don't say gay characterization, is an effective um, use by the critics of the bill because, as you pointed out, Emily, there's not there has not been on the right a backlash against same sex marriage. It's extraordinary that we've had um, a series of Supreme Court nominations in which that didn't come up at all. The issue of abortion is still being debated 50 years after Roe versus Wade, but um, uh, Oberfell is not, you know, a huge fight, and it suggests something about where, if you want to start a culture war where you have better, you're going to do better if it's something where you can fashion it into something that's predatory, this idea of trans people walking into bathrooms, you want the red scare, you want the peril that is, you know, lurking in the in the shadows, rather than this to be defined as something that's um, discriminatory against gay people, which is um, much less popular. So this is like, a, this is a radical effort to take back the turf. I would note, it is true that marriage equality is largely unchallenged, but it's not totally. You have the Tennessee legislature this week considering a bill which would create a whole new separate class of marriage in Tennessee between one man and one woman, oh uh, only available so to depressing. one man and one woman that would, that would, uh, the idea is to, that, that there are people who are uncomfortable being part of a right that uh, is available to gay couples and they only want to have a marriage that is, that is of their own kind. Uh, and, and that this would create this new new second source of marriage in Tennessee, which is, that's a way of, of diminishing and, and perhaps threatening marriage equality. Separate but equal. It's so gross. Yeah, it's so gross. Uh, the power of this bill is, I just want to remind us again, the power of this bill in Florida is not what it explicitly does, but what it implicitly does, which is that it exposes any teacher in the state to the possibility of a lawsuit and any school district to the possibility of a lawsuit if something a teacher says is taken the wrong way by a student. And as with this Texas abortion bill that we've talked about so much, with its bounties and with so many other bills that that uh, conservative legislatures are pushing, you don't actually have to end up doing anything or punishing anyone to effectively change behavior on a massive scale, to chill the ability of teachers to teach and to to silence people. And it is, it, I just cannot, I flag this every time we talk about one of these laws, one of these bills, it is so malevolent to use the threat of litigation against professionals like doctors, teachers, nurses, because it 
people cannot risk most people will not take the risk of losing their livelihood for something which is a fairly small at any given moment but that there's an outsized enormous risk and it's ambiguous whether they would win if they challenged it legally and most people are just not courageous enough to challenge it legally because they've got better things to do or they've got to live their life and and i emily as a as a lawyer i i hope that you um you got to find a way you got to find a way to defeat this kind of strategy it's so wicked Let's remind everyone that I am a retired lawyer who no one should ever hire. However, um, I think the other part of these private enforcement mechanisms that's so damaging is that it emboldens the kind of most litigious, angry people in the society, right? Like, who follows up on these laws? It's like the people who are, you know in the comments threads in a really destructive way or, like, in their base. I don't know. It just is really... It's not good to be having the state's power handed over to private individuals in this way. John, what do you make about the the way that Disney has been dragged into this fight? Disney, which is traditionally the most powerful political force in Florida, has stayed out of the don't say gay legislation as now its employees are very upset about that. And now it's kind of all mixed up in it and is under attack from lawmakers who traditionally have been very allied with them. Um, how does a corporation like Disney deal with a situation like this? It's been dragged in in part because um, this, unlike, say, the, the Tennessee law you mentioned, which will kind of live and die in Tennessee, this fight over Don't Say Gay and particularly Disney's role have become the culture war issue of the moment on the right. I mean, so that there's been, a, you know, an incident in a state that has been that has mushroomed because of the presidential ambitions of the governor, DeSantis, and also the ambitions of uh, people who worked um, like Christopher Rufo, who worked on the critical race theory from the right, using that as a very successful term to kind of detach the term from its original meaning and then using it as a cudgel. So all of the players who are involved in creating culture war Uh, blazes have engaged against Disney. And Disney helped by the CEO um, at first said, you know, there's not, it's not not very useful for corporations to take a stand on these kinds of things. That was the wrong thing to say. Um, His, there were walkouts by his employees. Disney is now saying that it opposes the HB 1557, which I think is the actual uh, name of the bill, or the, um, and the, the Disney CEO has said that the company will now work to repeal the legislation, which is not just being against it, but working to repeal it. What's interesting to me about the Disney piece is, so as you said, largest employer in the state, has a lot of local muscle, but also has a massive public relations arm, which can fight back against the effort to put it at the center of the culture war in a way that there was no massive arm to fight back against the the reframing of critical race theory. I think you have another thing happening too, which is in a few weeks, the Disney theme parks are going to allow in-person interaction again. Kids from all over the world who beg their parents to take them to Disney so they can hug Minnie and Mickey and whoever else you hug will be doing that again because it'll be They've they've finally lifted the COVID restrictions. Disney has a role in the lives of young people that is incredibly powerful. And that is, it will be interesting to see if they can be turned into a villain when you have the power of connection to the brand that Disney has. And also, I should note that race with critical race theory plays a different role in American life uh, than 
homophobia does if this is if this continues to be defined as don't say gay there is more energy in american culture on racial issues which will be an interesting way to see this if if this is a failure as a culture war issue or if it succeeds that will if it succeeds then i'm wrong if the attack against disney fails then i think you could use that to build a case that the reason critical race theory was successful as a political weapon in the culture war was because it it tapped into all of the existing energy uh, about about race in America. I just want to say Disney, late to the party, much harder to repeal a law than prevent it from passing. Yeah. And, and I, I actually think it's one of these things where the attack on Disney will fail. Disney will continue yes. to be an incredibly successful multi-billion dollar company. Disney will also fail to get this law repealed. Sure. And if you look at the Texas, what's happened in Texas, all these companies were so outraged by what is happening in Texas with the abortion legislation they're all still headquartered there they're all still hiring people people are still going to work there and yes i'm sure there's a company or two on the margins that will because of the attacks on on trans people because of uh, the the restrictive abortion legislation certain states will not locate to certain states but mostly not and disney is not going to leave florida disney is going to go back to the legislators who passed this bill who pushed the don't say gay bill and it's going to go back to them and ask them for help on uh, you know land use issues and ask them for help on lower taxes and ask them for help on eminent domaining some new swamp to build a, another theme park and they're going to get that help and that's going to happen disney is just wants this to it, it really wants this to blow over and it will blow over and everyone will get back to normal and disney will be able to exert its power where it can which is as an employer uh, but it being a powerful employer is no, no is n- no longer strong enough to dis- to resist culture war forces. The the culture war forces are stronger than Disney in this regard. Well, they're not stronger than Disney in the sense that Disney, when the culture war is trying to cl- declare a moral war against Disney, they're not likely oh. to win that moral war. Yeah, so, that yeah. part. Yeah, yeah, they, they won't win that part. They, yeah. I mean, but they will win by having the legislation that they passed become law in Florida. Yeah, and, which is a big win. And punish Well, people. it's right, but you need to be super clear about the distinction between the two. One is a legislative win on this issue. The other is an effort to turn the entire army of the right against a company, which if that were successful, it would be a massive success in cancel culture, which is an outgrowth of this bill, but would be a different, a different thing, just in terms of how successful those culture uh, warriors are. It's an important line to watch because, as you mentioned earlier, the chilling effect of these kinds of things, if Disney gets taken down, if Disney can be damaged from a marketing standpoint, then then that affects the behavior of all kinds of other companies. I want to bring up a second part of this Don't Say Gay bill, which has gotten much less attention, at least in the press I've been reading. And I think it's important because it is a issue the right wing is using in a bunch of states to bring lawsuits right now. And I think we're going to also see copycat legislation. So second part of the bill, separate from the part we've been talking about, has a provision requiring schools to inform parents about mental health like changes in relating to students. And What this is about are lawsuits in which parents found out that a child asked a school to change their name and pronouns so they could alter their gender identity, and the schools talked to kids about this and didn't tell parents at kids' requests. The sticking point here is this question about parental authority, parental rights in school. 
I think one thing that is um, important about what some schools are doing and also about uh, the legislation is that the question here is, do you have to make any kind of finding that this parent presents a risk to this kid if they find out this information? So we have a history of families rejecting LGBT kids, and it's terrible. Like, one of the central findings about LGBT kids is that family acceptance and support is crucial for them. So if you have evidence that telling a parent is going to hurt that kid, get them kicked out of the house, that's one thing. But the schools in some places, and I don't want to imply this is everywhere because it's not, but in some places, schools are making acceding to identity changes for kids that hundreds of people know about, right? Because the other kids know this isn't private information, and they're not sharing that information with parents, parents who feel like they have their best interest at of the kids at heart. And there are now lawsuits pending in Florida, Wisconsin, California, probably other states I haven't been keeping track of. And they're all brought by right-wing organizations. Some of them are affiliated with Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the most successful law operations for the right at the moment. And I just want to keep an eye on this because I think this is one where, you know, parents can have legitimate concerns about what they do and don't know about what's going on in school. You know, when DeSantis talks about this law, the governor in Florida or other members of the right, they also talk about this part. Like Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about this part. And I feel like the mainstream media is kind of ignoring it. But I think it's um, it's the part of the bill that parents might be more sympathetic to. Yeah. I mean, the reason they're talking about it is because it fits back into the critical race theory playbook, which is turn this debate away from a more popular thing, which is acceptance of homosexuality and turn it into a parent's rights. They're trying to indoctrinate my children against my will. Whatever the topic may be, I don't want them indoctrinating. So it's a, it well, gets back to that. I don't think, I don't think it's exactly the same thing, John, because it's well, different no, obviously it's not exactly what, what, it sh- what you're being taught. Like be, I think, I think the objections to, oh, my child's being taught ideas I object to and being indoctrinated to my child has adopted an identity, which the school has embraced. Every one of their classmates has embraced teachers have embraced and I am been left totally unaware of that's a I feel like that's a those are distinct paths yeah but my my only point is that if you look at if you were trying to reverse engineer a successful political campaign what's super useful and powerful that we showed this this was shown in Virginia and other places is any instance in which a school gets in the way of what for merit or not if you can make it a conversation about the school standing between you and your child that is incredibly powerful politically. And so if you're in a situation in which you want to gain the most power politically, that's what you would do. So I, you're right about the difference. Uh, and, and of course it exists. But I'm just saying there are other reasons you want to get the, turn this into a conversation about parents and the school standing in the way of them. Up there, that's a really strong pull to talk about this that way. Yeah, I mean, it can both be a real issue in some families and also super easy to weaponize, right? Those things can be exactly. true at once. And I that's, that's one right. of the reasons I raise it is I think, like, you know, you ignore it at your peril because of the politics. Emily, what when a kid is in seeks counseling at a school, what obligation does a counselor have? This is distinct from if I decide to take my child to, to seek therapy, because there are some rules about what the therapist's has to tell the parents if the child says to them in therapy. Do those rules kick in when a child talks to a therapist in a school, or is there a triggering mechanism? 
So I actually talked recently to someone at the National Association of School Counselors about this. Boom. And their rule, oh my god! I know, right? And I have nowhere else to put this piece of information. So thank you for asking. Um, what what this person told me, uh, I hope I'm recalling it correctly, I think I am, is that the rule of that organization is that when kids tell counselors things, that is confidential, that is protected, and they the counselors in those private sessions may not divulge that information. So that's important because I think it's separate from what we were just discussing, yes. which is a more public social transition, right? If you just tell the counselor, they, according to this association, keep it confidential. Although the person I was talking to also said that there is a real patchwork of rules and probably laws in different states about this, and that in some states, it's not protected. And so it can happen that counselors have a kind of conflict between their professional ethics and the rules of a state or a school district. Right. Because professional ethics might suggest that you that you have, let's say the child is engaging in self-harm, uh, that you have to tell the parents that as a, as a professional ethics matter, distinct from a legal matter. Yeah, I should have. I'm glad you pointed that out, because if you are worried about harm to a child or other people, then you have an obligation to disclose like legally as well as ethically. That's a separate matter. But to underscore your both of your points, this is different because it's about a kid that is asking people to to call them by a different pronoun than the one their parents use, which everybody knows about rather than something that was said just in the privacy of therapy. Yeah. Gapfest listeners, we have this new Gabfest reads once a month. One of us is talking to an author we admire about a book, a new book that they've got, or potentially an old book that we love, and discussing it and and getting deeper into it than we could in a, just a regular Gabfest segment. So these are these are full podcast episodes that we're doing monthly. And this month on April seventeenth, I'm going to be talking to Amy Bloom about In Love, her book about the death by suicide of her husband. Uh, Brian, after he received an Alzheimer's diagnosis, it's a it's a fantastic, interesting book. It raises all kinds of questions about the American healthcare system, about Alzheimer's, about dementia, about uh, you know one's own capacity to make decisions, about love and marriage, and it's it's just a beautiful and and also surprisingly funny book. So get in love, read it, and come listen to my conversation with Amy Bloom on Gabfest Reads on April seventeenth. An Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, on Staten Island, in Staten Island, within Staten Island, upon Staten Island, has voted, has voted to unionize. The Amazon labor union, masterminded by Christian Smalls, a former warehouse supervisor fired by Amazon at the beginning of the pandemic, came as a real surprise. And it's the first time that Amazon has been defeated in a union vote. It, it, it really was a stunning victory. Emily, um, what will this allow the workers at this warehouse to do? <laughs> we'll see, because Amazon may appeal or refuse to bargain. But what they are hoping to achieve is to be able to bargain about labor conditions in their warehouse. And, you know, these two folks, Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, these pretty young guys in their 30s, like have just pulled something off that the American labor movement has had a really hard time doing for low these several decades. And it's going to be really interesting to see what what happens, you know, especially in Amazon. Does it inspire workers in other warehouses and cities to 
try to um, similarly organize? And also, does the American labor movement rethink its strategy, which in Bessemer, Alabama, and the Amazon um, facility there, they brought in a lot of outside union organizers to lead the charge. And the thinking has been that it's better to have professional organizers. They get paid to do this stuff. Like, they know what they're doing. And this really seems to throw that whole strategy up into the air like confetti because it sounds like what really resonated for these workers were having people among them who who were them, who were talking to them, and who were, like, really in it for the long haul with, like, you know, picnics and food and information sessions and just, like, really sticking it out. And it's inspiring and also this just very interesting challenge. Christian Smalls held a lot of his conversations at the bus stop, which I, outside of the warehouse, um, and you would love to have listened in on those conversations. Because as you say, Emily, he has firsthand knowledge from five years working there of how to really affect people um, uh, who work there. And I, it would just be fascinating to hear what those conversations would have been. We should remember also that the reason this is such a big deal is that private sector unions membership, I think, is at 6%. Yep. It was at 17% in 1983, um, which total union representation in the forty in 1948, it was 31% of all uh, workers belong to a union. So just to give people some context for, for how small the labor movement is and why this is a big deal, potentially, if it can finally grow after years of decline. The, this Amazon case is so interesting. Obviously, this represents a tiny fraction of Amazon's workers. It's, it's only about 8,000 workers at this warehouse, which is less than 1% of Amazon's Workforce. I mean, imagine having it's Amazon's workforce is more than a million people in the United States. So this does not, uh, in any sense, you know, reshape what the the company is facing all over. But uh, there, there's been this real challenge of of unionizing Amazon. So many challenges. I mean, the company has spent enormous amounts of money to oppose unionization. They've raised wages to make them more competitive than other employers, and so so it hasn't been quite as an attractive target to unionize in some places because they were relatively high paying employer but also it just there's so much turnover at amazon those were the numbers that were stunning which is that there's three percent or according to some reports three percent a week a week a week in turnover 150 percent a year that you replace your entire workforce every, in in eight months because people find the working conditions so hard or because they maybe they just see it as oh i'm just going to do this for a bit for a paycheck and when you have that much turnover, it's very hard to get the continuity that you need to mount a successful unionization campaign. Isn't, isn't that also why people were surprised that Starbucks had success in Buffalo at the end of last year and has had successful union votes in almost 10 other places is that they have a, they don't have the, maybe the same turnover rate, but that in retail or in, in food services, you have a lot of just normal churn, which makes it hard to form unions. I mean, it's important that workers have more economic power right now because unemployment is low. Right. Can I also say two structural things? So one is undergirding this success is the National Labor Relations Board and the fact that the Biden administration controls the appointments and the workers got a favorable ruling and they didn't get... Um, squished by the NLRB, which when Trump was in office, um, was absolutely squashing, I'm going to switch verbs, um, 
union organizing effort. So, I mean, this underneath this is like a real difference that a Democratic president is making in office, even though I think we often lose sight of that underlying force. And then the second point I want to make is one that I'm just so interested in. And bear with me, I hope this isn't super boring. But I'm used to thinking of the National Labor Relations Act that one of the big weaknesses in it is that it doesn't allow for what's called sectoral bargaining, where you bargain like across a whole industry. And also, if you have a franchised company like McDonald's, and this is not Amazon or Starbucks, then you're restricted to store by store organizing, you can't do a larger front. And so for a long time, it seemed like this was a real problem for unions that they had to organize each place at a time rather than doing something that was broader that presumably would give workers more bargaining power, like if you have all the McDonald's or at least all the McDonald's in a state. This seems like the total opposite lesson, which I'm so interested in, that you have one facility at a time, that that actually is much more feasible, that then you can like start somewhere and inspire workers in other places and it's organic and, you know, low to the ground and individualized. I mean, it means that you have the tiny fraction of workers actually represented, just like David said. But the the sort of opposite cross current of that organizing dynamic, I'm so interested in watching yeah. that. And and we're seeing with Starbucks that that if there's some success, that it moves pretty quickly. That that there's been success in Buffalo, and now it's you know Colorado, Utah, around the country, there are Starbuckses that are unionizing. And it wouldn't be surprising that in if you if you looked up in two years that a significant percentage of the 9,000 Starbucks stores in the U.S. were were represented by a union. I suspect with Amazon it'll be harder because each Amazon facility is bigger. Amazon can afford to invest an enormous amount at each place to try to fight it and will, I suspect. And we'll find out across the street when they vote, I think, later this month uh, on uh, the, the other Staten Island facility um, late in the end of April is having a vote on whether or not to join the ALU. And the revote in Bessemer, Alabama, right. which is taking place because of a favorable NLRB ruling for the union, hasn't been fully resolved, although the union is a teeny bit behind right now. And back to your point, Emily, about the leverage given to employees because of the labor market, we're at 3.6% unemployment in March, which is just a tiny bit above 3.5, which is a basic record for the last half century. And there are currently almost two job openings for every unemployed worker, which gives in the in the John Deere case in Iowa, where basically workers turned down two previous two offers from the company to contracts, they they basically use that leverage to get better terms in Iowa. That'll be really interesting to see the extent to which that keeps they, they continue to have that leverage because of the larger labor market. Can I add one more thing um, that was in a good piece that Noam Scheiber wrote about all of this in The New York Times this morning? The other unions provided behind-the-scenes help. Christian Smalls and Derek Palmer, the two organizers, had access to meeting space they could use from one union. They also had access to, like, you know, text messaging that they could send out to everybody at once from another union. And those things matter. You know, you don't—it's one thing to say that, you know, it's amazing that $120,000 raised through GoFundMe. Like, the whole story is such a Cinderella— or I guess I should say David versus Goliath story. But it's also good that they didn't have to totally reinvent the wheel, right? Like, we don't want them to have to, like, create or pay for some big text messaging app on their own. Are you guys surprised or not surprised that the Gallup poll says that 68% of America 
Americans approve of labor unions? I think that makes sense because so one thing about unions is that as they have diminished in numbers, inequality has risen like they really are related to each other. And I I mean, what I take from that poll is a sense that worker solidarity is really important. And we have actually like lost a lot of labor's bargaining power in this diminishment of unions. Some people distinguish in their heads between public sector and private sector unions. And it's been, in that sense, like really bad for the American worker that particularly private sector um, union membership has has gone down so much. I, I'm sure that's also one of these things where if you polled that a different way, you could get different yeah. answers. Sure, if you sure. ask oh, people God, yes. like, do you approve of, you know, your an organization taking money out of your salary paycheck <laughs> each month and... <laughs> And that you're compelled to join it. Do you approve of the part that allows the union to actually do anything? Right. It's a sign of potential, the the fact that it's vanished from American life, not that it's a virulent part of it. I was just thinking back to to Scott Walker, and I know that was a public sector union, but I mean, he basically tried to launch a presidential campaign uh, based on a fight with unions. I mean, a lot of good it did him. Absolutely. And right to work laws, which, you know, have really strangled unions in some red states. Let's go to cocktail chatter when you are kicking back, waiting for an Amazon truck to deliver your latest uh, batch of cocktails. I guess, to, I don't know if they would deliver a batch of cocktails. To deliver something, a book to read, uh, and you're having a cocktail and chatting as you wait for that package. Emily Bazelon, what are you going to be chattering about? My chatter comes from, um, or is flagged for me by listener Daniel Friel. He sent it to me on Twitter. The chatter is from Manvir Singh, and it's about work in the 70s and 80s that anthropologists led by Bob Bailey did with small-scale non-industrial societies in which they were writing down exactly how people spent their time all through the day. And what Manvir Singh is flagging for us is that people spent a lot of time doing nothing. It was a category called idle, doing nothing, that differed from napping, chatting, fixing tools, tidying up, and idleness because of illness. And people spent more than a quarter of their time doing nothing. It was true for men and women. Women also spent more time working, and men spent more time socializing. But this doing nothing category was a big one, and I feel like it uh, just suggests to me that we all need to get better at doing nothing, which I am poor at. Perhaps just like watching Netflix or YouTube or whatever is our doing nothing because we basically zone out when we're doing those things. But I was just really taken with this idea that it's part of like we've lost boredom. We've lost just like contemplation. Um, But yeah, 27% of your time, idle, do nothing. I'm not sure we've actually lost boredom because I drive people into states of boredom all the time. That's true. If you just listen to John, no, 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 that's just not fair because it's super entertaining. (laughs) John, what's your chatter? My chatter is about Charles Darwin and his habits. Um, I've always been fascinated by his daily walk. He had this gravel track near his um, in his house in Kent um, that he called his thinking path. And every day in the morning, in the afternoon, this is very Plotzian. As I say this, I realized he strolled around and he walked in on this path. And and that was part of his daily constitution. But obviously, also, he came up with ideas. And I thought as a notebook carrier, did he carry notebooks with him? Because 
obviously revelations would come to him and and he would want to write them down but in the day of pen and ink like did you carry like a pot a pot of ink and your quill pen and so forth anyway i i made the mistake you of asking start doing that you could carry your pot of ink and your quill pen what do you mean so. i could how do you know that i don't have a bandolier yeah. with uh, different ink pots on it um so true so i made the mistake of asking this question on twitter where you're not supposed to ask any questions you're only supposed to immediately know everything and indeed have the right (laughs) position on things always but uh, lots of people said of course you had notebooks how do you think you wrote stuff down so anyway nobody had a damn answer but i was uh over the transom this week came this fascinating story which is that two of his notebooks that were reported stolen from the Cambridge University Library were suddenly returned. And and then this is very amusing to me, which is that um, basically they thought they got lost in the shuffle, right? And there are 10 million books at the Cambridge um, Library, so they had to do a little looking. So it took them 19 years to finally file a police report. They were went missing in 01, and the police report was filed in 2020, but it must have been useful because... On March 9th, the books reappeared. They were left in the public area of the building, which is not covered by CCTV cameras. And the two notebooks were wrapped in a um, in an archival box in a pink bag, I think. And there was a note left that said, Librarian Happy Easter X, which I presume is the name of the thief. Anyway, so I don't, these actually were not notebooks that he took on his thinking path, but they uh, are very cool notebooks and we'll put a link to um, that story. But then very briefly, I went to look at this wonderful site called the Darwin Correspondence Project at the University of Cambridge, which has all of his, he was a constant letter writer. And it also includes a note from his first love. Um, he was he had a long marriage, but there was the, these letters that were found from his first love. And the letters that were written, the, the post is about how there's a line in one of them, this woman's name was Fanny Owen, in which, um, in, in which she writes, burn this as soon as read or tremble at my fury and revenge, which is an amusing way to write. But the more interesting thing is, if you look at what she wrote on the physical piece of paper, it looks basically like someone wrote a letter and then, in a fit of fury and revenge, scratched it all out. No, that isn't what happened. What happened was because postage was so expensive and cost more the furthest, further you sent it, people didn't. People tried to write two letters on one page. Right. So basically, right. you wrote the letter, then turned it ninety degrees and wrote right. your second yeah. page over the first, which I didn't know. Um, so there we go. It was fascinating. Um, so check out the um, Darwin Correspondence Project and the uh, AP story about the return of the notebooks. Oh, and I should say, speaking of journaling, which we did on here, the oh House God. Slate's How to Podcast with um, with our good friend Amanda Ripley as host uh, talked to me and uh, Anna Quinlan about uh, journaling, and uh, you should go over there and listen to that. And for those of you who were playing Elden Scrolls, um, my character build is Confessor. There were a lot of people who wanted to know about that. <laughs> wow. Jesus. All right. My chatter uh, is about a magnificent story in the Washington Post about Vaughn Smith. Uh, it's a story by Jessica Contrera, and it's a profile of 46-year-old Washingtonian who is a hyper-polyglot, by which uh, we mean that he he can speak something on the order of 45 languages. No. Um, yeah. That's amazing. And he, he, 24 of them, he speaks well enough to carry on lengthy conversations. 
He can read and write in eight alphabets and scripts. He just has a gift for languages that's extraordinary. But that's not really what's interesting about the story. What's interesting about the story is just this portrait of a man who he's a carpet cleaner. He's sort of led a very peripatetic life. And he has this one particular set of skill skills that he loves and that he indulges and he and that he's passionate about because he loves meeting people who speak languages and he his passion is not really the language itself it's the people who speak the language and so he comes engaged with the language by uh, meeting a person who who speaks that language and that that is his form of connection and it's this very intimate way of relating to a language and a culture and it's it's an incredible portrait of somebody, uh, and and also of someone's brain who work that works in a in a way that your brain almost certainly does not. Uh, so check it out in the Washington Post. Also, quickly, a recommend if you're in Washington. My girlfriend and I went to the Nollywood photo exhibit at the National Museum of African Art, and this exhibit of portraits of Nollywood film stars. So Nollywood is is uh, the Nigeria's film industry which is the hub of the African film industry and one of the, you know, with like Bollywood and Hollywood, one of the great film industries of the world. And it's just amazing portraits, amazing portraits. And that prompted us to go watch a movie called The Wedding Party, which is an Hollywood movie, which is like Crazy Rich Asians, but with Nigerians, which is so much fun. So get watch that on Netflix. It's only on Netflix another week, The Wedding Party. Check it out. It's really, really fun movie. <laughs> I barely speak one language, but I'm wondering if linguists would flock to the carpet cleaner because of what he could tell them about Noam Chomsky's idea that there is an there is a structure of language that goes across all languages and all dialects that is its basic like structure below the the earth. And uh, if he has some special insight to that, given his incredible brain, I don't know the answer to that. Good question. Speaking of flocking. Let's talk about our listener chatter, which is flockish this week. We got lots of great chatters from you guys. Thank you so much for sending them. Please keep them coming to us at gabfest.slate.com by email or tweet them to us at Slate Gabfest. And it comes from Kate Conquest, and it is a, it's a, about an avian soap opera unfolding in Berkeley, California. Hey, Gabfest. This is Kate Conquest from Boston, and my cocktail chatter this week is a delightful article from the LA Times by Jeff Bercovici, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, um, about these peregrine falcons that are studied by researchers at UC Berkeley. Over the last few months, the webcams have captured what they refer to as an avian soap opera of this falcon couple who get separated, they get injured, they get courted by other birds, and have really become local celebrities as people follow their story. The author also weaves in some lovely reflections about his own interest in birding and watching these falcons with his daughter during the lockdown. I shared this chatter with my own dad, who's also a dedicated GabFest listener, so I hope you all enjoy the story as much as we did. Thanks. I did enjoy that story as much as you did, Kate. Thank you so much. Awesome. And we bring families together. Parents, children. There are a lot of parent, parental and children GabFest listeners. I had a colleague whose last name was Con uh, Savage, and I wish that my former colleague whose last name was Savage married Kate Conquest, and they could be the Savage Conquests. That would, be a, that would have been a good family name. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is, of course... Bridget Dunlap. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery is the Executive Producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For 
Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson of David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You're probably listening late at night. Well, who knows? I don't know why I'm imputing that to you. I don't know. I don't know when the hell you're listening. You could be listening anytime. But there's a Microsoft study. Microsoft looked at behavior, worker behavior, uh, by looking at activity on, I guess, Microsoft, various Microsoft platforms, and revealed that for some people, some small group of people, not for all of us, there has been developed a third peak in work activity. So there's a traditional peak of work activity, which is morning, late morning. Then there's one in early afternoon, which really baffles me because early afternoon is kind of my low productivity period because I'm usually napping, uh, even on a work day. And then there's a third one, which is around nine or 10 at night where people seem to be returning to work and, and doing something. Uh, it's they, Microsoft, hazarded a few theories that, that maybe it's people who want quiet away from the meetings, bustling meetings of the day, catching up on stuff they couldn't because they were in meetings. Maybe it's people who are doing collaboration with people in other time zones. So that's a time when you could meet with people in other time zones, but they just don't know. And so we thought we'd talk about this. How many shifts do you guys work? Do you have a third shift, a fourth shift, seventh shift, one shift? Hmm. I either have many shifts or an inability to get anything done. <laughs> it just depends on the day. But I, I, so I have, I have two feelings about this. I often do work between like, I don't know, after dinner and 11 maybe. And I do find that I can concentrate during that period if I'm not too tired. Like some nights I can't do it at all. But if I get started, if I'm thinking about something and it's, in my head anyway, that's pretty productive. The problem is it makes it harder to go to sleep. I really struggle with that. You mean because you get hyped up, you're intellectually hyped up, you're like, and now you're... Yeah, I mean, my brain is, I mean, like, whatever. It's like whirring to the extent that it whirs, and then it's hard to make it stop whirring. Your brain whirs, Emily. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be clear. (laughs) That's a really good point. Intermittently. It it depends on the work you've got to do, because there's some work when you're on deadline or you've got an interview that, you know, where you have, it would be a luxury to have distinct periods of work. I mean... For me, it's, you know, the two days. That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash Plus and become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.